Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This week, a former president faced his third post-White House indictment. There are court fights underway over access to reproductive health care from one state to another. And in the sports world, there's concern over sexual harassment and hazing. There's a lot happening in the national spotlight, so it's a good time to check in with Illinois Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this weekend is the Democratic Congressman of Illinois' 8th Congressional District, Raja Krishnamoorthy. He was elected in 2016. His district includes west and northwest suburbs of Chicago, and his was one of the stronger voices raised on Capitol Hill in favor of a commission to investigate the violence and the motivations behind the January 6th insurrection. Well, this week, we saw the outcome of that investigation. He's also been active on issues involving national security and cybersecurity involving China. We have a lot to talk about this weekend. We are conducting this interview via Zoom conferencing. And Raja Krishnamurthy, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much, Craig. Glad to be back. Well, we might as well start with the story that uh, made headlines all week. Former President uh, Trump pleaded not guilty to charges. He illegally tried to have the results of the 2020 election overturned. The indictments, including the ones for his handling of government secrets and allegedly pushing hush money to an adult film star or paying uh, hush money to an adult film star, have done nothing to dull his popularity. Uh, He is still far and away the front runner for the GOP presidential nomination. Congressman, what do you make of that? Um, What I make of it is, you know, we have a little bit of, I guess, dissonance with regard to, you know, what the legal system is telling us about this individual and what, you know, at least Republican voters are telling us about him. Although, very interestingly, uh, I also think that there are a lot more independent voters now who are maybe former Republicans who have left the party. And I think that uh, they are disgusted by what they see. But all that being said, uh, now we have two tracks going simultaneously. We have a legal track where uh, you have multiple indictments and potential trials next year. Um, and then you have uh, a political track 
in, including a presidential primary calendar and the presidential election. All I can say is they are going to kind of affect each other, but um, you know, in a court of law, we're going to have able jury members as well as a, as different judges and different jurisdictions deciding this, and it's not going to be based on what's on social media and Fox News necessarily. I think it's going to be based on facts and evidence, and I think we'll we'll find out soon enough uh, what what judgment they they render. Except that in some ways these two tracks keep uh, intersecting because, for example, uh, there are a lot of Trump supporters who and and the former president himself who call the cases themselves election interference. And that seems to be one of the themes that uh, that Republicans, Republican supporters of the uh, former president anyway, have are carrying through this. It might be. But, you know, I gosh. Let me just take us back to January 6, 2021. It was one of the most harrowing, dark days in our democracy. Most of my colleagues, uh, even if they might say something differently now, even on the other side, were powerfully affected by what happened. And um, I think the American people, the vast majority of the American people, um, I think were repulsed by what they saw. And so, um, I still trust in the American people to make the right decisions. I had a town hall meeting the other day in Gilberts, Illinois, which is a new part of my congressional district. It's a very, it's more of a rural area, uh, an exurban area, and it's definitely not the most liberal democratic stronghold of my congressional district. And I could sense even there that um, even folks who might be Republicans, they wanna move beyond Trump at this point. All that being said, he's still a presidential candidate. We'll see what happens. And certainly in a court of law, he will have, um, you know, the finest defense attorneys that money can buy. And there's able prosecutors and uh, a judge and jury who will sort this out. How concerned are you about whether or not, uh, especially the election based uh, charges, get decided before the election? I, I would like to see them decided before then. I think that before people cast their, certainly their general election ballot, I don't know if they'll be able to know before, for instance, uh, their Iowa caucus ballots, so to speak, are, are cast or their hands are raised, that they'll know one way or another how these cases go. But certainly before the general election ballots are cast, I hope that people have kind of a fuller picture of what happened in these cases. Um, and if, if, they, if that doesn't happen, we have the risk of, of course, uh, Donald Trump you know, potentially using uh, the office of the presidency, were he to become president, to then uh, have charges dismissed or to pardon himself as well. And so that's, uh, th those are high stakes. Uh, I wanna talk, just the last thing I wanna talk about about this, is is the other high stakes and that is the division within the country um because it still seems that there is a real schism the the, the recent poll that showed 43 percent of people backing joe biden and 43 percent backing president trump uh is one indication but 
my concern or what I want to get your feeling on is if you have, as happened ahead of January 6th and since, a president of the United States telling people someone stole their government from them, even if there's no evidence of it, it's not surprising, I would think, that people are feel outraged and still feel like there's a fight. Sure. And of course, he's been saying this now for a long time. Uh, I think the only difference between before when he was saying it and now when he's been saying it is that we have an indictment of him in Washington, D.C., in which those very allegations are going to be um, sorted out in a way that they haven't been before. And I think that um, as I was talking to uh, a couple of Republicans the other day, they were telling me that they think that people will continue to line up with Donald Trump now, especially at the charging stage, so to speak. But they're not really sure how it will go if, you know, if he were convicted. And it's not a it's not a, a day to celebrate, by the way, when a president is charged with any crime. Um, it's a somber day, and certainly it would be so were he convicted of any of these crimes. And I think that would also have an impact on voters too. I want to uh, turn to something else uh, that is going to be in the courts and has been in the court of public opinion for some time now, and that is uh, uh, the issue of sexual harassment and such in sports, uh, in the sports realm. Um, now I want to hearken back to you and a house, uh, oversight subcommittee in the last Congress investigated allegations of, uh, sexual harassment and misconduct in the Washington commanders football organization. And we bring that up because recently that resulted in a $60 million NFL fine against the team's former owner, Daniel Schneider, Snyder. Um, and, but now our headlines are all about hazing and alleged sexual harassment and assault among Northwestern University sports programs. Several lawsuits have been filed. How concerned are you about a hidden culture in sports organizations? I'm very concerned because, look, I'm a, I'm a big sports fan. I'm a big football fan. But let's just take the Washington Commanders for one moment. Dan Snyder was the owner of this um, was the owner of this team for a couple decades. And the, the instances of severe sexual uh, harassment, uh, as well as workplace misconduct, are, were so pervasive that um, you know, we had to initiate this investigation to really get at the facts uh, with regard to, you know, what the NFL was actually doing and not doing to investigate itself and the team. And what we found was appalling. In fact, in one of our hearings, uh, a new claim, a very credible claim uh, came to the fore um, from, a, from a woman who was a former employee of Dan Snyder. And that then initiated yet another set of investigations with the NFL, which resulted in his I would say his termination as an owner. Um, and I think that was a, a, a good result, although I was not happy that he had the opportunity to sell the team for as much as he did, but that's 
that's a different story. Um, I think that within sports culture generally, I'm concerned that sometimes our, our sports culture prizes athleticism and accords a certain star status uh, with regard to players or coaches um, and a certain power with owners that somehow allows them to escape uh, escape kind of having to comply with the standards that all of the rest of us have to comply with in our workplaces, right? It's, it's crazy what, hap- what we're learning about Northwestern, thanks to, by the way, those student journalists who broke the story. But is it totally surprising to us that um, this, this has happened when um, you know, it seemed like the players did not have an opportunity to really air their um, concerns? And, and you know, I think that this is a reckoning for us all. What needs to happen as these cases move forward, as as sports at the college level and the professional level move forward for people, first off, to, for this culture to uh, to evaporate, but also for people faced with these things to feel comfortable about coming forward? Well, I think that uh, this is going to be a very tough issue to deal with. But I think the one thing that we have to remember is that whether it's an NFL team or whether it's uh, any sports team, they are also workplaces, right? And so you have a lot of employees, you have a lot of uh, people in a highly charged atmosphere um, who at the same time they're doing their jobs need to be protected, uh, whether it's from you know sexual harassment or racial harassment and so we have to remember that when we, when we uh, talk about these teams. And then, you know, I think we also have to hold accountable uh, the leagues that might be harboring certain individuals and not regulating themselves the way that they should. And that's where, you know, there are uh, in part pushes in Congress and other places to, um, to regulate them for, for the leagues. Um, and and really, that does bring up the, the the question: How much push or or sway does Congress have in cases like these? Because these are in some in many cases private entities, and they may be workplaces. But in some cases, you're you know you're kind of walking along the lines of a definition between, especially when you're dealing with players, of people who are employees versus you know something else when it's in, when it's college. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, for instance, with regard to uh, workplaces and NFL, where they certainly are employees, you have, you know, certain statutes like Title VII, which is the classic workplace employee uh, statute according protection um, for those uh, uh, for those employees. I think within the uh, the college framework, you have Title IX and other similar statutes. But look, I think at the end of the day, there's going to have to be uh, even more pressure than merely from politicians, right? I think there's going to be tremendous pressure from uh, alumni, from, you know, the places where these universities are located. I know that Evanston is now uh, 
rethinking the whole stadium deal with Northwestern in light of what's happened. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure from a lot of places. And um, I think the boards of trustees, as well as the governance bodies, uh, have got to come to terms with this ASAP. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore, and my guest via Zoom is Northwest Suburban Dem- Democratic Congressman Roger Krishnamurthy. Well, want to uh, talk about some other, uh, well, let's talk about one other workplace issue uh, since we're in that realm right now, um, because one of the things that you've been doing uh, somewhat on the te- technology side and just on the employment side is addressing um I think what uh, what you've termed credential inflation, and that is uh, employers and, and how their hiring uh, systems are working. And uh, are we facing, you know, this kind of inflation where people are being required to have credentials that they don't really need when they apply for jobs? And what can Congress do about that? Thanks for bringing attention to this issue. So Republican Congressman G.T. Thompson and I wrote this letter to the Biden administration, basically uh, expressing our concern that more needs to be done to make sure that uh, job vacancies uh, and employers, especially in the federal government, are tracking people's skills, are scrutinizing people's skills for the jobs in question rather than just their degrees. There seems to be um, a little bit of discrimination toward people who don't possess, uh, for instance, four-year degrees or bachelor's degrees, even when they can perform all the skills required for the job in question. And at a time when we have such a skilled labor force shortage, at a time when there's so many vacancies that are going unfilled, we have to kind of get rid of that prejudice or discrimination or bias against people without four-year degrees. And so We want to start with the federal government. We sent this letter to the Biden administration. We're hopeful that we get a positive response. And I'm also uh, pursuing legislation with uh, another Republican, uh, Mr. James from Michigan, uh, to encourage employers to not use uh, software that would otherwise get rid of all non-four-year degree holders uh, for certain positions that they post on different websites. Um, and so uh, this, is a, this is an ongoing issue that, that needs further attention. And let me ask you to, to spell out uh, what, the, what the impact of this is, because, I mean, it's not, it is not just, uh, you know, whether people are required to have more, um, more credentials than they need. We're also talking about access to to employment, are we not? I mean, of that's right. Is, is even qualified to have a job, and you're sort of selecting out people. That's right, um, and and they're going to be, uh, you know, folks without the political power that others have to kind of keep the system as it is. And I think that, um, but but bottom line is this, Craig, which is that. Uh, our nation currently has something like 10 million job vacancies, and we have about 6 million unemployed people. So even if all those unemployed people were to take the jobs um, currently available, we still have a, sk- a skilled labor shortage. And so when you have this type of situation, 
let's not make it harder on ourselves by having these artificial barriers that should not exist for people to gain employment. Yeah, and I and I would think the people who can't afford college, uh, you know, also then it means they can't afford some jobs uh, if they that's or, right. whether they have the talent or not. That's right. I mean, that's that's the part that I I, I often think about. You know, you think about. I spend a lot of time on this issue of skills-based education and career technical education. And we have some excellent districts, uh, especially high school districts and community college districts in my area, um, community colleges like Elgin Community College and Harper, who spend a lot of time taking the very people that you are talking about and trying to skill them, upskill them to, to gain access to the jobs of the future whether it's in cybersecurity, whether it's solar panel installation and the like. So to have these people then get discriminated against because they don't have a four-year college degree, even though they have exactly the skills necessary to get these jobs, which we desperately need to fill, not only hurts them and their potential, even when they're doing everything right, it hurts our economy and our economic potential too. I want to uh, look at one international issue that I know you have been working on, uh, and that is uh, involving, we've been hearing about competition or, or, or really tensions, economic tensions between the US and China, um, but you've also been looking at competition between the US and the Chinese Communist Party. And explain why this is something that people ought to be paying attention to. Um, like I said, we're, you know, they're used to the political uh, arm of this, but what's the economic uh, conflict going on? Well, as you know, uh, the People's Republic of China, which is governed by the Chinese Communist Party, which I'll just call CCP, has become an economic powerhouse in the world. It's the world's large, second largest economy. And unfortunately, in a lot of instances, the CCP has gained uh, economic advantage on the United States through uh, unfair trading practices, forced technology transfer, the theft of intellectual property, cyber hacking, and the list goes on and on. And, um, and so, we were tasked by this Congress uh, to create a new committee, a new full committee of the Congress to study this competition, assess the economic, military, and technological risks posed by the uh, CCP and what to do about them. And so that's what we're doing. We're doing it in a bipartisan way. I, I dare say this is the most bipartisan of any committee in Congress. And um, we're trying to do it in a serious way because if we, if we don't get our arms around this situation, if we don't curb those unfair practices, if we don't up our own game and fix what needs to be fixed in the United States so that we can educate our uh, workers in the skills of the future and fix our broken legal immigration system and invest in technologies of the future, uh, then our standards of living are going to be affected materially by this, um, by poor performance on our part. Not to mention the fact that if we don't deter conflict with the CCP, uh, you know, we could have a war. And that would be a very, very, very bad day for the world, not just our two countries. So we wanna avoid that. We wanna up our game. We wanna deter aggression. 
and um, you know make sure that we can engage with the PRC in, in a way that uh, inures to their benefit and ours. But you just raised what some people might uh, think would be conflicting goals, um, because in one on the one hand, the U.S. wants to maintain its own strength in the economic relationship, but in the diplomatic, but doing that raises the tensions on the diplomatic side. And how can two parties that are not philosophically uh, in agreement with each other maintain that balance? Well, I think that we have to, um, first of all, we have to work with our partners, our friends, our allies in the region and the Indo-Pacific region and elsewhere to, to set up a kind of a rules-based order, an international rules-based order with regard to our economies, with regard to our militaries, um, and, and incentivize good behavior. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, I think that the CCP is increasingly trying to resolve its disputes with its neighbors through military means whether it's Taiwan, whether it's in the South China Sea, which, by the way, it claims entirely as its own, uh, or whether it's the Himalayas in the Himalayas with the Indians. And, uh, you know, these types of measures trying to resolve these uh, disputes militarily will lead to conflict, which would be horrible. And so what we want to say is, look, let's resolve our differences peacefully. At the same time, let's be strong. We have to be strong to deter aggression by the Chinese. On the economic side, similarly, um, you know, we have to engage where possible, but at the same time, working with our allies and friends and partners, we have to say, look, you can't steal intellectual property. You can't dump goods to drive out businesses uh, in our different economies. You can't force our companies to share their secrets in order to do business in China and so forth. And if we can kind of set those rules in place and, and hopefully do it on a multilateral basis, then we have some hope of both engaging and at the same time setting guardrails in terms of what can and can't be done in the relationship. Finally, I would just say I went to Iowa for um, a field hearing that we did yesterday. And uh, basically that was about the issue of uh, the theft of agricultural intellectual property. This is happening uh, surprisingly in places like Iowa and other, other uh, states where the Chinese Communist Party is basically stealing seeds, stealing uh, uh, software, stealing algorithms for the, uh, <laughs> for the creation of new breeds of corn and soybean and, and so forth. And, um, you know, this is deeply concerning as well. This, is, this goes against our values. And of course, we have to protect this industry, which is important in Illinois, because we export so much to the rest of the world. To what extent are you sensing, and I, and I, I think we need to acknowledge that there are, there are the public postures that both countries, uh, you know, put forth, but then there are often things going on at another level that we don't see, fortunately, I think, uh, that where people get along better, to what extent are there people willing to listen 
I mean, I'm asking about people on the Chinese side, but on both sides that are really willing to talk and are finding meetings of the minds and common ground. Um, well, I'm glad that the Biden administration has sent uh, different cabinet level officials to uh, the PRC to meet with high level officials um, in search of those very people that you're talking about, which is, you know, people that, you know, would be looking at the situation practically and saying, look, the Chinese economy is tanking right now. Uh, 22% youth unemployment. Um, the real estate market is crashing. They're on the verge of deflation, even at the same time that the American economy is showing resilience, it's ascending. Maybe this is a time where the CCP should say, look, maybe we should curb some of our economic aggression and military aggression. And why don't we try to engage so that we can improve our uh, economic future? Um, that is the hope. That is the hope. I, I think there are definitely people on our side that want to have productive conversations along these lines. I'm hopeful that there are more people like that in the CCP. But as you know, Chairman Xi Jinping, who heads the CCP, is rather ideological. And um, I don't know if he's willing to muster the courage to change tack and really put the priorities of his people first, which is improving their economic futures. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Congressman. That is uh, 8th District Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. Thanks for spending the time with us. Um, to our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That's WBBMNewsRadio.com. You can also find our podcast on Odyssey.com. Uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 1059 WBBM. T Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus ATT and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T Mobile store today. 